Okay, this morning I want to talk about altars. I'm going to present it in maybe a little different way than you've seen in uh, altars before. We're going to be in the book of Genesis. We're going to be jumping around a little bit. We're going to look at four altars uh, built by Abraham. But before we get into that, let's ask God to bless our time here together. Father, we thank you for the VBS we have. We thank you for all the children and their love for Jesus. We thank you for the training they have. And and we ask that you would be with them and bless them and their families and everybody that helps out. And that it would encourage them to go share Jesus with their parents, their siblings, their classmates, and others. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for the opportunity to meet. In your son's name, we thank you for your presence with us. We ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us this morning as we look into these things and that you would teach us how to increase our faith and our trust of you. We can't begin to fathom the depths of your love for us, but I ask that your Holy Spirit will give us each insight into the, the great and deep love you have for each one of us and teach us that because of your love for us that we can trust you completely and implicitly. Thank you for this time. Guide us now, and may everything here bring glory to your and to your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, when you think of an altar, you usually think of a table-like structure uh, that you put things on to sacrifice to to God. Uh, In many places in the world today, there are religions that still have altars, and they still offer gifts, make offerings to the gods. In Christ, we don't do that because we don't need that because Jesus was our once and for all sacrifice. So we don't need altars like that anymore. But Romans 12.1 says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So I want to suggest to you to begin with that an altar today for us is any place of fellowship and trust in God. Any place of fellowship and trust in God. Those are our altars today. So we're going to look at four altars uh, that Abraham built and see what God can teach us today from those altars. The first one I have called the altar of initial surrender. The altar of initial surrender. And that's we're going to look at um, Genesis 12, Verses 1 through 7. <laughs> Genesis 12, 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, and probably most of you know, Abram, Abraham was originally Abram. God changed his name to Abraham, so we're talking about the same guy here. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. <laughs> And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth, Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh, 
Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham didn't begin as a believer in God. He was actually a pagan and an idol worshiper for most of his life. He grew up in a a city called Ur, spelled U-R, called Ur of the Chaldees. It was in the land of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And it was a a great prosperous city. It was located uh, on the north end of the Persian Gulf. And so it was very wealthy because of the trade. All the trade that would come up the Persian Gulf and and its way through Europe and and other parts of the Middle East. And so it was a port city, much like New York City or San Francisco today. Uh, A lot of commerce, a lot of things passing through. So it it was wealthy. Archaeologists also tell us that in many ways, it was a very modern city. There were multi-story brick and stone buildings with indoor plumbing, um, sanitary um, provisions, sanitary things. Um, it was, so it was wealthy, nice, fairly modern city. And that's where Abraham grew up. Now then, with his father Terah uh, and his family, they moved north. Uh, up the Euphrates River Valley to a place called Haran. Haran was also a fairly modern city with brick and stone structures, and it was also very wealthy because it was also on a trade route. It was on the caravan route, uh, which became known as the Silk Road. Uh, Caravans would come through. So it, too, was very wealthy, very prosperous, uh, and in many ways a very modern city. Uh, Terah died there. And that's where Abraham was when God called him. So that was Abraham's experience up to this point. And then God called him and said, okay, I want you to follow me to a place that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to give you that land to you and your descendants as a possession forever. Now, he didn't tell Abraham where he was going. He just said, follow me to the place that I'm going to show you. Okay, now, that's oftentimes hard for us. We don't like surprises, right? We like to know where we're going, uh, what it's like, kind of prepare ourselves. We like to be in control, know what's going to happen. Uh, well, God doesn't want us in control. He wants us to trust him, right? If I were to say to you, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to the mission field. Why don't you come with me? Probably one of your first questions is, well, where are you going, right? And I've known missionaries that went to the mission field and it turned out to be not what they expected and they burn out and they come home. But Abraham put his faith in God and said, okay, I'll follow you where you you lead me. Now, if we're in his position, we might think, wow, I'm in a pretty good place here. You know, these mountains, it's a pretty place. Uh, I've got a lot of modern conveniences, a small town. If God is going to take me to another place, it must really be fantastic. I don't know what Abraham thought, but he followed God and he ended up in the land of Canaan. And when he got there, there was no brass band welcoming him. There was no welcoming committee to give him the key to the city. There was no palace waiting for him. Um, It turned out to now where he'd come from is called the Fertile Crescent because it's well watered, uh, lots of vegetation. Abraham found himself now in a desert wilderness. um, And he spent the rest of his life living in a tent. Furthermore, the land that God had said, I'm going to give you this land, was already inhabited. 
it was in the possession of the Canaanites, who were a fierce, powerful, warlike people. And so you might think, if you're in that position, what is God doing for me? But it says that Abraham, when he found himself in that position, he built an altar and he worshiped God. So that's the initial position that you're in. Say, God, if this is where you want me, this is where I am. That's what Abraham did. Also remember that he's 75 years old here. How many of us at age 75 would like to start all over again? Right? We, we consider 75, age of 75, that's the golden years. Right? That's where you relax and enjoy everything you've built up over, the, over your lifetime. You know, you retire and take it easy, take a cruise, do something fun. So God called uh, Abraham at age 75 to put everything behind and start all over again in the place he was given to. See, that's Abraham's faith. And he got there and he built an altar. Can you do that? When God leads you someplace different, maybe not what you expected, can you still trust God and worship him? Abraham did. But you know, when we place things on the altar for God, God often tests them. He'll test them to see how genuine our faith is. And that's what happened to Abraham. So we get to the next altar that I call the altar of humble recommitment. The altar of humble recommitment. We're going to kind of go to the end of the story and then I'll back up. But in Genesis 13, 1 through 4, it says, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, in gold, and he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now, what's happened in between these two altars is that God tested Abraham. So if it wasn't enough that Abraham finds himself living in a tent, living in a desert wilderness, having to move around from place to place to find enough grass and food for his livestock, being in an area that is possessed by the Canaanites, now things get even worse. God allows a famine in the land. And what happened to Abraham is what often happens to us when circumstances change hands. His faith began to test. And his problem was he took his eyes off God and he put them on his circumstances. That's easy to do. When you suffer setbacks, uh, maybe something happens to you, maybe you lose your job and you get worried, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to get by? What am I going to do? And we start failing to trust God and start figuring out how can we work ourselves out of this problem. And that's what Abraham did. Now, Abraham saw in Egypt that the Egyptians had the Nile River. It was very fertile and well-watered and everything else, different from Canaan, and they weren't suffering from the famine. So Abraham said, well, I'll move my family to go into Egypt and we'll escape the famine because he was afraid he was going to, he and his family were going to die in the famine. Now, God had said, go to the place that I will show you. The place he showed him was Canaan. There's no record he ever told Abraham, go to Egypt. Abraham did that on his own. And a lot of times that's what we do. Take our eyes off God, set out on our own. And that very often leads to problems and leads to fear. 
And that's what happened to, to Abraham. First of all, he was afraid of the famine. So he moves into Egypt, which that's not the place where God told him to be, but that's where he goes. And so that probably satisfied his concerns about famine. But when we pray from the place that God wants us, our problems don't tend to go away. They tend to increase, and the same thing happened to Abraham. He didn't get rid of his fears. Now he's got a new fear because, see, his wife, Sarah, was a very beautiful, very attractive woman. So now he gets scared in another way. Now he's afraid, well, my wife is really beautiful. These Egyptians may kill me in order to take my wife for themselves. So he's got a new fear. And again, he tries to handle it himself. This time, he tells the Egyptians, in order to save his hide, he tells the Egyptians, well, she's actually my sister. So what he did was to save his hide was he threw his wife into the bath. Okay? And <coughs> don't do that, guys. Um, as, as Let me take a little rabbit trail here. God's word tells us as husbands, we're to love our wives. We don't throw them to the wolves, even when things get tough for us. In fact, Scripture tells us that we are to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? He sacrificed himself for the church. He didn't kill the church himself. He died for his bride. Abraham wasn't at this point willing to do that. <coughs> okay, so Abraham's got some failings here. Now, you might say, well, it wasn't, he didn't really lie to the Egyptians. Sarah was his half-sister. It's a half-truth. But it's also a half-lie and a half-lie is still a lie. So things are getting worse for Abraham. Uh, furthermore, he convinced his wife, Sarah, to also tell the Egyptians, yeah, I'm his sister. And Sarah obeyed. Now here's another really rabbit trail I have for the women. God's word also tells us, tells you wives, you're to obey your husbands. I'm not saying obey them if they tell you to sin. That's something different. But uh, you're to obey your husbands. And what I've found through scripture and through experience that if wives obey their husbands, even if husbands are wrong, they make mistakes, we make bad decisions, God still seems to work it out for the wife and honors her faith and her obedience to God by obeying her husband. I also find it amazing. God has a way of focusing in on what our real problem is, right? Guys, we have trouble showing love, don't we? I mean, loving wives, it's not hard for us to be submissive, right? There's a yes here, okay, honey. You know, submission isn't really hard for us, but love, man, you know, telling your wife you love her, yeah, it's not always that easy. It's kind of messy. So that's always the issue. Women, you have a different issue. I don't think you have problems with love. I haven't noticed. But submission and obedience, yeah, that's a little tougher, right? That's, that's what's led to the women's movement. You know, we don't think, man, we're not going to be subservient to that. Or but God, if you follow him in faith and trust, has a way of working things out. I saw that early on in my own marriage. Um, <coughs> and I have a dear godly wife who is obedient. Um, shortly after we got married, uh, we got ahead financially. And I've always owned stock but since I was a baby. Uh, I used to hate it as a child. Every Christmas from my grandmother, I would get an envelope with a $5 bill in and a note. 
because I'd added X shares to a portfolio. And as a child, I hated that. I didn't want that. I wanted toys. But I always had stocks and bonds. And so I grew up knowing how to invest and, and familiar with that and comfortable with investing. Well, my wife, Judith, didn't have that experience. Her, she was from a farming family. They were wheat farmers, very frugal, didn't make investments. And so we got some money ahead, and, and I told Judith, I said, I want to invest this, this money. And she was concerned. I said, I don't know. We've worked hard for that money. Um, I hate to risk it. And then I'll never forget this. I mean, she looked me right in the eye, and she said, you're my husband. God told me to obey you. So if that's what you think we should do, then I'm with you. And God blessed it. He honored it. We, we made good money uh, off the investments. Ever since then, Judith has been gung ho on investments. But, uh, but that's obedience. <coughs> and also, her obedience and her willing to do that has always been an encouragement and a motivation to me to pray when I make decisions to make sure that I make the right decisions because I know my wife is going to be obedient to God and put her faith in God and in me. And so I'm motivated to make sure I'm doing the right thing before God and for her sake, as well as for mine, and to honor God. So anyway, little rabbit trail. Uh, so Sarah obeyed. But because of, of Abraham's mistake here, uh, he was getting into real trouble because now he's at risk of losing his wife. Because you see, Pharaoh's people saw Sarah, and they told Pharaoh, hey, this guy's got a haughty sister, man. You want her, and Pharaoh brought her into his harem. So now Sarah is in jeopardy. Um, Abraham's marriage is in jeopardy. And more than that, God's plan is in jeopardy. Because see, God's plan was to bring the Messiah through this family. His son was going to come through the family, and if... Sarah had been violated. That may have messed up God's entire plan. So there's a lot at stake here. <coughs> but God still worked, even though Abraham sinned, even though he strayed from the place that God wanted him, God still worked on their behalf and worked on Sarah's behalf. You see, the, the Egyptians had a, a custom. When they would bring a new woman into the harem, they would always wait several weeks, usually like five or six weeks before they had relations with her. And that was to make sure that she was clean, that she wasn't pregnant, didn't have any venereal diseases. So that gave God time to work. And God did work. He worked on Sarah's behalf and, and also, as we'll see, uh, Abraham's behalf. And it's amazing to me that even when we sin, God is still working, he's still calling us, he still wants to bless us. And that's the case here. And so what God did is he cursed everyone in Pharaoh's court except Sarah. And then he revealed to Pharaoh, this is really the guy's wife. And so to placate Abraham's God, Pharaoh generously gave gifts to Abraham. And he left Egypt a very wealthy man. He ended maybe poor, maybe moderately wealthy, but he left a very wealthy man. But even during that period of lack of faith, God worked for him. Now, Abraham lost his testimony because the Egyptians kicked him out of the country. Kind of like the old Westerns, you know, all right, I want you out of town by sundown. And uh, Pharaoh's posse, you know, his armed men escorted um, Abraham, his family, all his possessions 
to the border of Egypt and took them out of the country. So they carried water bags with them. And so Abraham then came to his senses and he went back and returned to Bethel, which was the place where he'd originally built the altar. And whenever you backslide and you get out of that place where God wants you, the place God has called you, the place of fellowship with God, and you come to your senses, go back where you were before you fell away. That's where God is waiting, and he's waiting with open arms to receive you, and that's what he did uh, in the case of Abraham. So now we find Abraham back at the altar of Kimball, recommitment back where he belonged, back to the place where God wanted him. Then we come to the third altar, which I have called the altar of continuing trust. The altar of continuing trust. Genesis 13, 8 to 18. Uh, So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, just as before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone shall number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also shall be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So he moved from the altar that he had built at Bethel, and God continued to bless him. (coughs) Now, it's interesting, too, these names. Bethel means the house of the Lord or house of God, and Ai means heap of ruins. And that's where we are when we backslide. That's exactly where we are between the house of God and and, uh, the heap of ruins. But God told uh, Abraham to continue journeying, a lot like uh, the theme for our VBS. The journey of God, continue to to walk with God, to follow God, heavy set walk, walk with God. And so he told Abram to continue moving through the land, and Abraham did, and God continued to bless. In fact, he blessed so much that he and Lot became very, very wealthy, had huge herds, and Abraham learned another lesson, that worldly prosperity often brings its own problems. And that's the case here. They had so many herds, they were so wealthy, It was starting to cause problems. They were stepping on each other's toes. And Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen were starting to fight against each other. Abraham is the patriarch of the family, and he saw that was not a good thing. 
they had to end the strife, and so he decided that you've got to separate them. Now, he was the patriarch um, of the family. He was Lot's uncle and also Lot's adopted father. And so as such, Abraham had the right to choose where he wanted to live and tell Lot, here's where you're going to go. But Abraham didn't do that. He was very generous and very godlike. Even though he had the right, he gave up his right and gave it to Lot. He told Lot, he said, you look around, you decide where you want to be, and wherever you are, I'll go someplace else. <clears throat> and so Lot looked around, and Abraham said, you know, wherever you go, I'll go elsewhere. If you go to the right thing, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the left. You get first choice. And Lot looked around, and he saw the Jordan Valley and thought, hey, this is the best land here. It's well watered. It's lush. It's not like this desert we've been roaming through. I'm going to go live there. And Abraham said, okay, then I'll, I'll stay here. So Lot said, I'm going to take the good land, and Uncle Abe, you can stay here in the desert with me. <clears throat> and Abraham went along with that. Now, you might think, if you're in that situation, wow, I've just been stabbed in the back. Here I'm trying to be generous, trying to help him out, and he takes the best for himself and leaves me the remnant? Never going to do that again. That wasn't, that wasn't Abraham's attitude. Now, have you ever done that? Offer somebody something, and they take the whole thing? And they leave nothing for you? Well, God spoke to Abraham here. And he told Abraham, he says, you've done the right, basically says you've done the right thing. You've acted in a godlike manner. You've been very generous. And don't worry about it, Abraham. You have not lost anything. And that's how it is when we're with God. We don't lose anything. Really, all we need is God. He's everything. He's the creator and provide everything for us. We tend to forget that. So God reminded Abraham, he said, you haven't lost anything. Just take a look around you. Look to the north, south, to the east, to the west. Everything that you see, I'm giving to you and your descendants forever. Okay, now he could see the Jordan River Valley where Lot was going, and that's part of what God says, I'm giving this to you. He hadn't lost anything. Now if you read on into the next chapter and following, you find out that actually Lot ended up losing everything. He made some really bad decisions. The first thing that happened is he was living in Sodom, and there were four other kings that came and attacked Sodom and the other cities there. And they captured Lot and his family, took them prisoner, and enslaved them, and confiscated all his possessions, all his goods. So Lot had lost everything. Now, in Abraham's situation, we might be prone to say, well, too bad, Lot. You made your bed. Now you got to sleep in it. All right, I'm sorry it didn't work out for you, but hey, I gave you your choice, and that's what you chose. Now you live with it. Abraham didn't do that. When he heard what had happened to his nephew, he got his men together, armed them for battle, looked to God, put his faith in God, and went out and attacked those four kings. And God gave him the victory. And they defeated those four kings in battle. And Abraham was able to return Lot to his home, give him back all his possessions, and Abraham didn't take anything for himself. And that's trusting in God. Can you do that? If somebody takes advantage of you, stabs you in the back, and then has trouble, can you put yourself in harm's way to try to help them out? That's what Abraham did. And did it willingly. 
God continued to offer the church to honor him. And it's amazing through all of this, even though Abraham had sinned, when he came back, the place of recommitment, everything was right with God again. God wasn't angry. There was no having to rebuild the, the relationship with God. You know, sometimes we think that when we sin and we fall away and think, man, now I've got to work my way. I've got to work my way back into God's graces. You know, it's going to take a while to get back. Um, there are people who tell you, well, you've got to do penance to get back with God. Well, penance is not a God thing. Penance is a religion thing. God doesn't work that way. As soon as we come back to him, he will honor us, and it, it's, it's like nothing ever happened. You know, we tend to think of God as, you know, well, you need to get back to him. He's going to hold it. You're like us. Right? I've forgiven you, but I haven't forgotten you. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't keep us out on the porch for a while and we're in the, with the slaves saying, well, you're on a probationary period. He welcomes us right back into the house as children. That's what the, the um, parable of, of the, uh, the son is, the prodigal son. God's waiting with open arms. And that's what he's done here with Abraham. Uh, my father's name was Ted, and he... He used to irritate my mother sometimes. She'd get so fed up and angry with him. And so he built, you know, kind of built a little outbuilding next to the garage. And he put in a, a fireplace and a wood-burning stove, put a bed in there and a bathroom. And he put a sign over the door that said, Ted's Doghouse. <laughs> and so whenever he got in the doghouse with Mom, that's where he went. He was in the doghouse. God doesn't have a doghouse. He welcomes us back into his fold. And so everything that Abraham did here because of his faith and because of God's promises to Abraham, God honored and prospered him. Right? And that it may seem like um, everything is going to go well from there. Everything's working out real well uh, for Abraham to this point. But then we get to the fourth parable. And this is the hardest altar of all. This is the altar of deep sacrifice. The altar of deep sacrifice. I've never been to this altar. This, you ever, I've known people who have, and I can tell you, it is a gut-wrencher. This is where God asks you to give up your most prized possessions for him. Altar of deep sacrifice. Genesis 22, 6 through 12. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took in his hand the fire and the knife, for the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, 
his name's in the ram tied in the thicket by his hand. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So here, after all this faith and all this trust and everything that he did, now God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac to him. Now, Abraham had waited his entire life for a son. That's what he wanted more than anything else in the world was a son. And he had to wait until he was 100 years old to have that son. But God finally gave him a son. Now Abraham is more than 100 years old. Isaac is probably a teenager at this time. And Abraham loves Isaac more than anything else in the world. And yet God asks him to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he dearly loves, on an altar to him. You can only imagine what is going through Abraham's mind when he thought of this plan. But he obeys God and goes and prepares the offering, lays his son on it, raises the knife, and just as he's ready to slay his son, God says, no, stop, because now I know and you know how deep your faith is in me. You know, we never really know how great our faith is until God blesses or give us the most important things in our lives in this world. Maybe it's a son or daughter. Maybe it's your spouse. Or maybe it's your home, your wealth, whatever. But how are you reacting when God says, I want to take that away from you and just trust me? That's hard to do, but Abraham was willing to do it. Some people who don't understand this story look at it and say, boy, I could never, I could never let that happen. And some people do that. I've heard people say, you know, I will never honor God. I'll never love God. He allowed my wife or my husband to die, and I'm never going to forgive God. Some people read this story and say, what an unloving God. How could God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? What a cruel, you know, hard-hearted God he is. But see, they don't understand the story. They say, how could God, he would, wouldn't he know what this would do to Abraham, how Abraham would react? Well, the answer is, yeah, God knew exactly how Abraham would react because God wasn't asking Abraham to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. He sacrificed his only son, whom he loved for all eternity, sacrificed him for us. Now, Abraham didn't have to see his son die on the altar. He saw the ram, God's substitute sacrifice, caught in the bushes. His head was caught in the thorns which points to Jesus with the, the crown of thorns. And the ram was a, a male sheep, um, and Jesus is the Lamb of God. So Isaac got up from the altar, and God's substitute was placed there and slain in the place of Isaac. And that's what God has done for us. He's given us a substitute. We were all born on that altar of sacrifice. We're all deserving of eternal death because we've all sinned against an eternal God. But God loves us so much, he says, I'm not going to put you through that. I love you too much. 
I'm going to put my own son on the altar in your place and sacrifice him. As I read this story, you know, we talk a lot about Jesus and, and what he endured on our behalf and the sacrifice he made, how he suffered and how he died for us. Those of us who he created are the ones who murdered him. <coughs> and we talk a lot about what he endured and he sacrificed. And that's all good. But recently, I've begun thinking about what it did to the father. He had to watch his son, whom he loved, die on the altar of the cross. He watched his son be betrayed by those whom the son had created. He watched his son, the people laughed at him and mocked him and made fun of him and beat him and tortured him and murdered him. Now, if you're a parent, think about that for your child. Maybe you've got an only child. Think of what that would do to you. That's what God endured for us. And he could have stopped it. You know, and if you're a parent, you're going to stop, want to stop things and protect your child, right? Jesus said to the people, he said, I could call to my Father in heaven, and he would send a legion of angels down to destroy you and save me. God could have intervened and saved his son. But he, had he done that, we'd still be dead in our sins. And God loved us too much to let that happen. He loved us too much to let us die on the altar. So he had to watch his son die in our place. That's what Romans 5, 8, 9, 10, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, maybe you're more spiritually minded than I am. I have trouble getting my arms around that kind of love. But that's what God sacrificed on our behalf because of his love for us. <coughs> also, let me tell you that if you know somebody who's going through a trial like this, that's not the time to give them advice. Talk to them and tell them what they should do or shouldn't do. Don't be like Job's friends who just added to Job's agony. When somebody's in this situation, what we need to do is come alongside them, just be there, and demonstrate God's love for them. Don't try to explain what's happening. Don't try to do any of that. Just let them know that God loves them. That's what they need. Because that's what God does for us. That's how much he loves us. Can you trust a God like that? A God that loves you that much, that that's what he did for you? Can you put your faith in him and trust that he's going to put your best interest at heart? Whatever happens, it's hard to do, but I pray that God will give us some insight into that kind of love that we can trust God more and more <coughs> because he loves us that much. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the God that you are. We can't begin to fathom you. We can't begin to understand the great love that you have for us. Let us not take it for granted. Let us learn more and more about your love. And let us love you in return and trust you completely and implicitly. Because we know you love us and you're going to do the best for us, whatever happens. 
even though we don't understand it, even though we don't always fully understand it, we know that your love is going to lead us to the cross. Thank you for this time. Thank you, too, that, that your son's death was not the end, that three days later he rose from the dead, and that is our guarantee that one day as we put our faith in what Jesus has done, we, too, will rise victorious, eternally, with the God who loved us so much. Help us to go from here knowing that love as we need it. All for the glory of you.